Hello everyone, it's Monday the 23rd of November and welcome to episode 96 of the Meet the Farmers podcast. I'm your host Ben Eagle. We're going to dive straight into our feature interview today and we're heading to the Fens. Last week I spoke to Cambridgeshire arable farmer Tom Clark. It's This evening, I am heading to the Cambridgeshire Fens near Ely to speak to arable farmer Tom Clark, who farms approximately a thousand acres of milling wheat, sugar beet, potatoes and other crops, including linseed. Tom is the fourth generation of his family to farm in the area. As we'll see tonight, he had a career away from farming first before throwing himself in wholeheartedly to agriculture. On top of the farm itself, he sits on his local internal drainage boards, he's on the NFU Sugar Board, and he also sits on the NFU's 2040 Net Zero Steering Group. Along with 22 of his other neighbours, he's also part of the Ely Nature Friendly Farming Zone, which seeks to share knowledge about farming alongside supporting wildlife and informing the public about that work. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for thanks for even wanting me on. I'm I'm, I'm very privileged. Thank you. No, done your research as well. I'm really worried now. You know everything. I should be asking you the questions. I have to say, it's amazing what the internet can can tell uh, about. Uh, <laughs> Don't worry though. Can you start by telling us uh, a bit about your part of the Fens? How would you sell the area if you were the local tourist board? Well, I probably wouldn't. I wouldn't start off very well because I would say. <laughs> It's really flat and, you know, a lot of people drive through it and don't look sideways and just have the impression that it's all flat and boring and, you know, it's quite, an, it's quite man-made uh, landscape. It's all two metres below sea level. Yep. Um, um, it's very flat, as I say, and it's um, pretty, I guess, if, if you're expecting your, your average pudding bowl hills and sort of bucolic fantasy of farming then this is about as far away from that as you can get <laughs> but then yeah. there is a big bite i think there's a there's a really strong beauty uh, uh, if you like horizontal we've got loads of horizontal <laughs> there's nothing in the way you get massive big skies yeah. you get um light coming in from actually our village where the, the farm is, is all around the village um and uh, th- there's an awful lot of artists who have actually moved here yeah. um because apparently the light is fantastic for painting and there is beauty in that flat, boring landscape. So don't let you tell anybody different. Uh, so you're the yes, you're a fourth generation farmer. Um, but I know that you didn't go into farming straight away. Um, so I'm interested to know: Did you want to be a farmer when you were growing up? It's a trick. Uh, people always ask me this question. Um, and I mean, yes, my dad was a farmer, and his dad and his dad had been farmers. Um, but we didn't grow up on the farm. Um, as I say, the fen is all old bog, old marsh, and it's yeah. not very stable. And when my grand, great grandfather and mother started the farm, uh, the house that they lived on the farm fell down. <laughs> wow! And uh, they decided, you know, let's not try that again. And they bought a house <laughs> in, in Ely, in in the in the town where nearby to the farm, so four miles away. And that has been, if you like, the farmhouse. And so that's where I grew up. That's where I have always lived uh, before I moved moved out of home. And um, yeah, my mum didn't farm. My mum wasn't a farmer's wife. She actually ran a, uh, a ladies' underwear shop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in, in the in the city in in right. um, Ely, and uh, no one ever asked 
me, you know, oh, when you were growing up, did you want to run an underwear shop? I can say, could we talk about that instead? <laughs> I'm not sure I've got a lot. I mean, I spent some of my formative years looking at ladies' underwear, but uh, I'm not sure it's, uh, it's broadcastable particularly. But uh, yeah, so no, I mean, so I was, I was um, it's a great privilege in a way, because I was given the opportunity of a, of a blank sheet of paper. It wasn't uh, it's quite a large farm for where we farm and dad had you know I think when I was growing up there was about 15 16 people working on the farm and yep. um, it was he was managing it if you like and uh, he didn't need us there every day to help out it wasn't yep. like a small family farm uh, it was my dad was a farmer just like my friends at school's dads were doctors or accountants or yep. policemen or whatever and um, yeah so it wasn't in my blood in that way certainly to start with. And, and my dad certainly didn't at the time say that he really, you know, was expecting us to do the same. He wanted us to do what we wanted to do. Yeah. He'd yeah. been slightly forced into it and he just didn't want to, you know, make us feel like we had to. Okay. Um, let's take a bit of a sidestep and, and talk about your soils. Um, because okay. as we've alluded to at the beginning, you've got good peaty, silty boys land soils. Girls um, land. <laughs> <laughs> or girls land or girls land um which which listeners in other parts of the country probably drool over however um i'm assuming you also have erosion risk um I mean, tell, tell, tell me about the benefits and the drawbacks of benland soil so it's so we are farming in what heart of what they call the black fens so the, the fens is divided into two sections the northern part up by the wash is much more silty Okay. Um, and it's had you know marine deposition on it and uh, and sediment from um, the rivers and stuff, and that is that's really fertile too. But down in the south of the fens where we are, it's black, and it's black because it's grown um, from when the fens were flooded with sphagnum moss and, and and sedges and things like that, and it's almost pure organic matter. It's I mean all our soils are about thirty percent organic matter wow. carbon um and wow. they're deep they're not as deep as they were which we'll probably get onto but yeah they're deep you know that you, you can dig two three foot down before you hit anything that isn't as black as coal dust um and but and it's flat as i said before it's you know it's drained out it's it's completely pancake flat so we don't have any slopes <laughs> anywhere on yeah. the farm really apart from the sides of the ditches so all the fields are separated not by hedges or um, banks or anything, but by ditches, um, and uh, it's all underdrained. And, and um, yeah, as you say, so it gives us a lot of options. We can grow pretty much anything, uh, yeah. including a lot of weeds. So <laughs> one of the things that makes the soil so black is the amount of weed seeds just sitting there waiting to grow. Yeah. Uh, so that is in a slight drawback from uh, from having such good soils. I mean, there's got to be some balance there yeah and as you say when it gets dry as well um the wind can blow uh, the soil and it does blow away i mean i've heard people say that sand blows away but you wait till you see you know fine peat blowing away it's yeah. like a, it's like a black sandstorm wow um so we do have to, we take measures we make sure that doesn't happen on our land not everyone around here does the same um and that is a huge issue the other problem with um uh, such high organic matters I mean, they're really good for buffering the soil and everything. They can they lack manganese, so we have to use a lot of manganese for the plants. The organic matter, it, so you'll read on your, if you've done your basis or whatever, and you, you read on, on um, 
herbicide labels or whatever you you know don't apply on organic binds to organic matter so we can't use residuals yeah. um, so if you're thinking you, you know you've just got your wheat and just bung on the um the pre-em or whatever we don't use pre-ems we can't use pre-ems we only use contact um okay. plant protection products um so that does limit what we can grow as well but these are small these are small things because you're right it's we we as i was saying to you before we started you know we haven't finished drilling yet it's what um, middle of november now and that's quite usual for us we can carry yeah. on drilling right through to february we don't um, sometimes it's a bit of a mess but again the soil is very forgiving we can get away with murder really let's talk about your cropping um so you grow wheat sugar beets linseed and, and you've got a joint venture potato operation with a neighbor um has that always been your cropping selection uh more or less yeah it hasn't really changed a great deal i mean i think uh, I mean, back in the olden days, my family, we were much more into market gardening. Then. Okay. So it was a lot more asparagus and yep. uh, fen celery is quite a famous thing it used to be. Yep. So, but since the war, it's been roughly um, 50% wheat. And that's kind of like the break crop between the other things we grow. So, you know, a lot of the money used to be in um, uh, potatoes and carrots and and sugar beet root crops like that so yep. that's really what we've done and we haven't changed massively i did drop peas a while ago okay. um but but gen- you know and brought on linseed but generally that's hasn't changed massively who does what on the firm um because i know you employ one full-time tractor driver and uh or tractor and, and telehandler operator um and a spray guy um and you're in charge of general operations. I mean, how, how, how big is the team? <laughs> it's a euphemism, if ever I've been This is my office. <laughs> I can maybe this is where you live. Desk. <laughs> yeah, this is, so he, hasn't, obviously... he hasn't left in, in two years. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't do a lot of tractor work, obviously. Um, I, I never really learned how to drive a tractor. <laughs> and when I first started on the farm, you know, I, I made an effort. I did a little course and had to hitch trailers up and everything. I tried reversing trailers and a pretty much very quick. I mean, as, as we'll probably talk about, I took over quite suddenly on the farm and the yeah. guys who have been here have been here for years. And I tried reversing a trailer into a barn and it was probably one of the most humiliating experiences of my whole life. <laughs> so, life is but about I can knowing, now do but knowing what your skill set is and, and doing it well. <laughs> that is the key. That is the key. So yeah, no, I don't do an awful lot of tractor work and well, I can do, I can fill in if needed, but if that happens, that means something usually has gone wrong somewhere else. Okay. It's, it's quite, it's quite a desperate measure if I have to get into a tractor. Um, but yeah, no, so I've got, um, two full-timers and uh yeah they, we split track to work between them i've got uh i used to have three and but the guy still lives on the farm and he's now a caretaker he sort of it's always a hand he's got brains you know he's got the yeah. experience yeah you know i i call him a caretaker but really i'm using him for his brain <laughs> his yeah. memories and his <laughs> knowledge of what he's done on the farm before and i have a, a bookkeeper who comes in and helps me with the office work and that, that's it really I don't have a, a farm manager. I don't have a foreman or anything like that. So all the planning, all the day-to-day working out what we're going to do, where it's going to go, um, what's the priority. Uh, if something goes wrong, what we do instead, that, yep. that's all me. Yep. Um, and all the marketing and all the selling and, and crop choices. And, yep. and uh, that's all me. I have an agronomist, an independent agronomist, who's been, he's, he's older than me, but he's been on the farm since he was 23. Oh, wow. Okay. I think. And so when I first started, he was an absolute 
Boone because he just knew the history of every field, what the yeah. weed problems were, which I knew nothing about. Yeah. So for about five or six years, I just followed him around like a little puppy every time he came <laughs> to the farm, um, just sort of just soaking up all that yeah. sort of knowledge. And I, I never studied agriculture myself. Um, I'd never been to you know agriculture college, and as I said, I didn't do a lot of it when I was growing up. So that was really what I learned about farming is from the guys on the farm and from my agronomist and from obsessive reading and, and yeah. talking to neighbours and things like that. Let's go back to your earlier pre-farming life. Um, so you did a degree in economics and politics, um, and then you spent four years working across local government, media relations and policy making. Tell me about that time and, and what drew you to London in the first place? Gosh, you've really done your research. I don't talk about this much. It's all, it's all on your site. It's all on your website. Oh, is it? Yeah, it is. Uh, well, it's all true. So, yeah. So, I did. I, I was very uh, out of university. I mean, I did well at school. So, university seemed like an obvious choice. Um, and it was quite a toss-up at the time as to whether I, I did economics degree or a biology degree. Okay. Um, and I just I think I thought economics was probably more useful. I mean, I was equally interested in, in, in both, and they're quite different yeah, yeah. ways to go. Um, and, um, yeah, so then I got, I got a place at University of Exeter, and I did my economics and politics degree. Um, and the politics was really quite a new thing because I hadn't studied that at school. That was really yep. very interesting. And, and I, it, I sort of the common thing between biology and, and economics, and politics, it, they're both about how the world works, what makes it tick. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that's where I was always coming from. Um, and and then having learned all the theory, you want to go out and put it into practice. Uh, but I spent four years of my life working in local governments <laughs> in London. Uh, it was just where I got a job. Um, and I was a, a policy advisor, a researcher, and I did media relations for a local council group, okay. uh, a, a local um in Kingston upon Thames, so in the southwest of London, yep. and it was very interesting. Well, I'm getting carried away, but it might not be interesting to everyone. No, it was no. a very interesting situation. In that uh, that council was what they call the Hung Council, so there was no political group. It was Lib Democrats, Labour, and Conservatives, and none of them had a majority. Yep. So it was all very febrile and very political, and it was all about trying to work out what was going to work and what wasn't going to work, and communicating all of the intricate machinations in a way that the public could understand about what's yeah. going on and i found that fascinating yeah. and totally absorbing and by the end of three or four years I'd, I'd realized that's i mean i enjoyed it but i didn't want that to be my whole life so yeah. i knew that it was the time uh, to take a decision to do something more because that could I mean quite easily that could have been a career path for me i would have ended up being some sort of spad or something in the end you know i looked ahead and i didn't want that for myself so yeah. I, I took a I took a left turn and and um, I went to business school. Ah, so that's that's a, when you did your MBA. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So um, I did it straight after. Well, so I've been about four or five years in um, in that area, and I'd done some work with newspapers as well. I'd done a work experience at journalism and things like that. So um, that took me then to uh, MBA. I thought, well, if if politics isn't where everything works from, um, you know, and it's just a lot of in fighting, <laughs> point scoring, <laughs> then, then maybe business, the world of business. And, and actually, I mean, that's how you change things in the world. That's how you understand how things work. So I went to business school 
um, in the UK and actually in the States as well. I was in North Carolina for a while at uh, Duke University. And um, again, that was absolutely fascinating. You know, really learned a lot about the world and about um, what makes business tick, why business works, how it doesn't work, what they're trying to do to kid consumers to do stuff and, 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 and learning the difference between value curating businesses and value destroying businesses and strategy and negotiation and all that sort of stuff. So, so from the MBA, I, I went off and, and decided, right, okay, I'm going to fix companies <laughs> and organizations. I'm going to be a management consultant and basically be an organizational doctor. You go in and you work out what's not working or what's not right, if it's not going in the right direction, and, and you put together a plan to fix it. So I did that for uh, about another four years, okay. several different places. And I worked also with government then as well, because I had a background in local government. So sometimes I did consulting projects. Um, in Whitehall and in um, the third sector for charities as well, which was really interesting and good. Um, and then uh, my dear old dad, um, who'd been plugging away on the farm all that time, um, got diagnosed with cancer and he died within six months. So then it was a decision about, well, what do I do then? Do I, my sister was doing a PhD and she was living in New Zealand. Um, so it was really down to me to pick up the pieces and um i did uh you know some people say well why don't you just sell the farm <laughs> yeah maybe in retrospect that would have been a good idea yeah but, um i, mean, I decided it, to do the opposite and <laughs> to be a farmer yeah in the experience i mean if, it, if it's okay i mean can we go back to that time and, and just paint a picture of what was going through your mind in terms of the farm but also personally i think i think were you around 30 32 33 then yes 33 years old um and um just moved in my girlfriend and i had just moved in together in london um and uh yeah my dad was diagnosed well he'd been sick for a while um not really sick he had esophageal cancer so he had a tumor okay. growing in his esophagus which meant he had trouble eating and, and, and swallowing and he was a kind of a typical i guess what you could characterize as a typical um farmer uh he was stubborn and he didn't want to go to the doctors so he didn't tell the doctors anything <laughs> he right. hadn't been to the doctors and he was getting slowly worse over a year and he hadn't even told me and my sister my mum phoned up one one day and said, uh, "You know, really worried about your dad. He's uh, he's not eating." And my dad was a large man. <laughs> he was, yeah. uh, and you know, I wasn't visiting as probably as often as uh, I should have done. And so I didn't realise that it was there was something as seriously wrong as there was. And um, he left it to the very last minute. I, I took a leave of absence from work, and. I couldn't actually concentrate on, on what I was doing anymore uh, once I knew that. Um, and so I wasn't very doing much good at work anyway. So I took a leave of absence and, and came back to uh, my mum and dad's place and um, was just trying to convince my dad to go to the doctors, basically. Yeah. And, um, and he eventually did. And they told him, they told him he had cancer on his 69th birthday. And uh, he was dead within five months. Wow. So you then spent um, a number of years learning on the job. Um, you've already mentioned uh, you're agronomist. Um, if you could give your younger self some advice, knowing what you now know, what would it have been? 
I think you you still don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> you might think you're getting somewhere, but you don't. There's always another layer, another level. Uh, yeah, being cocky like I was, <laughs> having been you know recalled into Whitehall to sort yeah. out the Olympics or death yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah, it's uh, only a thousand you know, acres in Cambridgeshire. This What's is it? just another project. This is just another project. You know, I'll find out what the main problem is. I'll get some recommendations down. We'll do that. It'll all go through. It'll be fine. No <laughs> way. No, 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 no. That's not how it worked at all. And um, pretty pretty soon, so one family has, has worked with every generation of my family, you know, and they oh, live wow. on or nearby the farm. Yep. And uh, the guy that works for me now, his great grandfather worked with my great grandfather. Wow. And the and the other the other family who, who actually live on the farm, uh, it was father and son. They both worked for me, and um, they'd been there for you know twenty years. Um, they really knew <laughs> what to do. My dad had a very different management style. He was very hands-on, quite micromanaging, and okay. uh, liked to be in charge and in control. Uh, whereas, even if I had wanted to be like that, <laughs> there's no way I, I would have actually known what I was talking about. <laughs> so, so that was quite a, to coin a management consultant, very quite a culture change. Um, yeah. I was asking people what they thought. <laughs> what, did you, what do you think we should do here? And they were like, are you trying to trick me? If I say the wrong thing, am I going to get fired? So, yeah, we have, have won. They're all still with me. So, so 12 years on, we're, we're all happily. So we found a way through. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I've fallen in love with farming. I fell in love with farming quite quickly. Let's talk about sugar meat. Um, <laughs> because I want to make the most... Yes of as i said before we started recording of of having you on here um it's not something that we discuss a lot on the show um although we did talk about it in some depth way back in episode 38 um with kit papworth and i went up oh, to kit, norfolk yeah. yeah great guys kit so you were invited onto the nfu sugar board in 2018 um and julie elected what do you think should be the priorities for sugar in the uk right now Right now, so this is November 2020. This is November 2020, yes. We are, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that we're in crisis. Um, we have had possibly the worst yields uh, in most of the beet growing area in living memory, even in the 1970s, which is when, uh, so the big problem at the moment is a disease called virus yellows. It's like uh, beet malaria, it's spread by aphids, um, the virus lives in their guts, and when they when they feed on the plants, it transmits to the, to the to the beet, and it basically destroys chlorophyll. And basically, a sugar beet plant is, is a little factory that runs on air, water, and sunlight. And the more sunlight it hits it, the more sugar it puts into its roots. And um, if it doesn't have chlorophyll in the leaves, it can't do that. Just as an example, a grower just down the road from me here, who is an exceptionally good grower, doesn't just grow sugar beet, grows all sorts of veg crops, uh, would normally expect at yields of 85 tonnes a hectare, uh, down to 35 tonnes. Wow. I mean, it, you know, some people predicted that this might happen. And, uh, you know, you sort of take it all with a pinch of salt, but it's, it's as bad, if not worse, than was predicted. So we need to think of a way that we can carry on growing beet. And I, you know, you probably know I'm on Twitter and, and I'm talking to farmers, beet farmers regularly. And I had just hearing one thing 
uh, over and over again is like, we've never had it this bad. It doesn't make us money. There's no point in carrying on. They're canceling their growing contracts. They're scaling back their commitments. Right now it's survival. And where's the optimism? Where's it going? Sugar beet is an amazing, amazing crop. Apart from that first two, three months of its life when it's really needy. <laughs> if it was a child, you'd be a bit, a bit disappointed. <laughs> you can't really look after itself. You have to kill all the weeds because it doesn't like competition. But once it gets to, to adolescence, if you like, then it just motors and, and it can stay in the ground. It just creates sugar. They yields. Uh, all the genetics have improved so much that yields in sugar beet have risen 25% in just the last 10 years. As I say, you know, yields of 85 tonnes a hectare are not unusual. Um, and, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it was 30 tonnes. It was like the yields that we <laughs> from the virus. So wow. I mean, things have come on so far and you can do so much with it. It's not just sugar that comes from sugar beet. We make animal feed. There's chemicals in, in the beet uh, called betaine and raffinose, which are extracted and used in toiletries. Um, it produces bioethanol. You, you can be a feedstock for um, biorefineries. In, in Holland, they make um, plant protein from the leaves for using in, in non-meat alternatives. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's just, and, and the future holds such, I mean, this stuff could replace crude oil in making plastics or... Uh, composite materials there's just such potential but you know i wouldn't want you to think there isn't hope there is definitely hope and there's really bright future for it if we can crack it but at the moment things are on the edge brilliant thank you for that honest appraisal um let's talk about the ely nature friendly farming zone um which is uh, you along with a load of your neighbors um what is that and how does it come about Right, so um, Ely Nature Friendly Farming Zone um, is a group of now, it's grown, it's grown, it started up much smaller, but now it's around 22, and it could even have grown since I gave you that figure. Um, and it's just um, farmers in the Ely area who have a, a wish to demonstrate that uh, we're all committed to at least 3% of our land area being in uh, environmental stewardship. Yeah. Most of us have got much more than that, but that's kind of, we need to set a bar somewhere. And we basically do three things. So we learn from each other. As I was talking about the fence soil, and it's a bit of a unique situation we are. We don't have hedgerows and, and a lot of the options on environmental stewardship are kind of tick box or, you know, it's a fixed menu. And some of them just don't work on our soil. So, we, so learning from people who've been doing it from longer and in the same situation um, just speeds up that learning process. So we're learning from each other. Secondly, we're bringing in uh, outside experts. So we've got Cambridge University down the road. We've had researchers from Cambridge University come in and uh, tell us all about wh what are the pollinating plants in the fens because, uh, you know, there's a lot of grass, actually. Yeah. Um, if you're not careful, it takes over because the soil is so, so fertile. <laughs> and so we're, so we're learning not just between ourselves, but bringing in outside experts to do that. And thirdly, our aim is to communicate what we're doing that we can produce food in a nature-friendly way and encourage an enhanced natural environment at the same time as putting food on people's plates to the local population um grew up in ely and you know the population of ely for about 50 or 60 years had been about 10,000 people nowadays it's it's pushing 25,000 people and in the old days you know a great proportion of the people who live there would would have been involved in some way 
with farming and that's not the case anymore yeah. very few are and you know that is a disconnect uh, between you know the fields and the city you can see that we've got barn owls and red deers and hares and water voles and bitterns and marsh harriers and and you know willow copses and and great skies and reed beds like i was talking about if we yeah. can show them that because we have to show them that because it's not obvious if you don't know where to look and we can make them feel good about local produce being good for the environment as well as tasty and, and nutritious and all the rest of it then that is what we'd like to do now you're also on the nfu's 2040 net zero steering group um which we've never actually discussed on the podcast yet um so i'm really interested in finding out a bit more it's a great goal um but is it achievable and what is the group trying to do i am a member of that group there are lots of other members as well i i, I wouldn't everything i'm going to say now is my sort of personal take on it yeah, yeah that's fine speaking and if you policy and i'm not um i'm not saying what will happen and I'm, I'm, I'm on that board as, as the Sugar Board's representative on, um, okay. on, on Net Zero. So that's my role on the board. Although I, I can't help it, I just get involved with everything. Um, <laughs> but you're asking, so the, the, so the, the, the ambition, uh, which Minette Batter stood up um, 18 months ago now at the yeah. Farming Conference, and, and a bit more than that, and, uh, and said, well, so, so the government has already said that by 2050, the whole economy by law has to be net zero, which means that any carbon, any greenhouse gases which we are producing is balanced out by um, sucking them up somewhere else so that we're not adding to uh, climate change uh, in terms of adding greenhouse gases. So the whole economy has to do that by 2050. Um, Minette Batters, quite rightly in my view, said that farming can do better than that and actually she set the, the ambition that we would show how farming can be net zero 10 years before that by 2040. And the work the NFU is putting in is, is, is demonstrating to government how that can happen and in a way which farming is brought into, you know, in ways which provide opportunities for farmers. Uh, we can shape this program of work, this policy framework, so that farmers get something out of it we know it's there's a risk there especially the way in the past few years that the whole climate change conversation has been going that this is another thing where people inspect with a clipboard can come around to every farm and tell us what we're yeah. doing wrong that's not what we want and this is the way that we're going to stop that happening um and you asked me whether it's achievable mm. it's a nice goal is achievable i would say it's, it's not just achievable it's really quite a tame ambition. You know, we are, we are the only industry, the only sector that can absorb carbon out of the atmosphere, currently anyway, can absorb carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into our soils or into renewable energy. Um, and to say that we're gonna be neutral 10 years before the whole country needs to be neutral, I personally think actually if we can't, if agriculture sector can't go net negative, um, then the, the whole country doesn't stand the hope in hell of going of neutral by uh, 2050. So yes, it's, it's doable. Yes, we can do it. We're trying to show how it is possible. But personally, I believe we can do it much quicker than any other sector, but also quicker than we have pledged to do. Uh, if people will listen to us and if they will 
you know, work with farmers to design how this can work. How do you see your business changing and adapting um, over the next decade, um, which is surely going to be significant in terms of agricultural change, certainly in terms of policy, but also potentially in terms of markets as well? Anyone that can give you a firm, definite answer to that question <laughs> is delusional. <laughs> Nobody knows. Everyone, everyone could give it a stab, though. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows. And it, this is a serious point because there's, I think there's a sort of, because we've been in the, the common agricultural policy since 1970-something, and, and, you know, we've had slight changes to the way that agriculture works, you know, on a completely removed schedule from the electoral cycle and what voters are, are asking for we have been detached from policy conversations in a way yeah what the agriculture everyone's the agriculture act was passed uh, last week or yeah. this week uh, and all that it's a very bare bald document all it does is give powers to government to decide agricultural policy yeah. Everything else you've heard about, all the elms, all the public money for public goods, all the productivity grant, that is all busking. It's all, it's all, you know, solo, guitar solo. It's, it, it's just whatever the government felt like saying at the time. And that will be the case every time there's an election. It will be up for grabs. It could be turned on its head and we won't know where we are. It's even possible that within the term of a five-year parliament, the government might change their mind. So we are exposed to change in a way that hasn't been normal for us for generations. But in some ways, that's no different to any other business. But the fact is that we have been dependent and probably will continue to be dependent for a while on government policy. So it's kind of like the NHS or education or the police. We are going to be one of those areas where it's fought over boringly and exhaustingly every time there's a public debate. So what they're saying now, I think there's lots of opportunities. You know, we've got Elms coming up. We've got um, the government that's serious or sounds to be serious about climate change. But then on the the downside, there's, you know, trade policy, trade deals. We've got Brexit means great uncertainty. I think just learn to live with that. Uh, because that is how it's going to be for the next 10 years. If you can make decisions that stand up on their own, more or less regardless of government policy, that's really where farmers have got to focus from now on. So that means standing on our own feet more. A lot of farmers can't do that on their own. So we've got to work together and we've got to look to sort of the models that they have on the continent more of farmer cooperatives, collaborative ventures with farmers, and being more market consumer orientated because that is going to change less frequently and there'll be less risk than relying on the government and whatever the latest government policy on agriculture is going to be. Hmm. What about on your own farm? How does that sense of fluctuation of change make you feel right now? I'm in denial. (laughs) 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 I'm in denial. I mean, I took on this farm. As I said, we haven't really changed what we do here in a long time we are below sea level already so in some ways the problem might go away because we might be fish farming <laughs> <laughs> and that will be a change that's come from outside but um, yeah no i think you've got to you've got to run a decent business i mean you've got to know what your costs are you've got to work out for yourself that you're not eroding what you're living off so i think that that sort of decision stands up 
in a business sense and for the long term in it, whatever the political weather will be whatever the actual weather will be uh hopefully but then at the same time you've got to think the unthinkable as well so i'm thinking now we're below sea level potentially we could be looking at uh within five years at, at you know wet agriculture you know what crops could we grow in fields that don't dry out or are even under a couple of inches of fresh water how will that work um i would need my neighbors to be in on that because in the fence you know it's not just your farm that's drained it's it's a whole um drainage system so again it comes down to what i was saying it's collaboration it's knowing the basics of your business and being open-minded as to what the changes may be. The other thing I think we need is, is people from outside to come in with some more objectivity. Frankly, people who don't know about agriculture and don't know about farming, but are, you know, prepared to sort of give their opinions and we're prepared to listen to, to see if there's anything in that that might help us out. So I think, yeah. as I keep saying, change is gonna be our bread and butter 10 years, but longer than that too and um we're going to have bigger problems than whatever the latest government policy is to deal with we always finish the show with the same two questions um the first one is if you had a message for the public what would it be and why thank you for listening thank you for um buying food and and caring about the environment and uh we are not probably what you might think you know whether your vision your idea of us is is from the storybook, you know, we're, we're not the farmer with the dungarees chewing the piece of corn with a counter pig and a sheep <laughs> in a bed barn in front of a pudding bowl hill. But we, we, we do other really interesting stuff and, and really glad you're interested. And we're not the evil slayers of nature either. So, you know, hello and talk to us, get involved, come and find out what we're doing and give us some ideas. That would be, that would be what I'd say. Brilliant. And uh, finally, a message for your fellow farmers. Well done. Well done, everybody. <laughs> We've done a brilliant job so far. It's going to get rough. <laughs> uh, the world is not against us. You know, we can, we can, we, we should have confidence and we can get on with this. And again, if we work together we can shape a better world and actually we're better placed than many people to do so. Oh, we'll leave it there. But Tom, thanks so much for coming on. It's been really good to meet you, virtually at least. Yes, you too. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm sure that your, 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 your sense of optimism will, will infiltrate itself throughout the sector and, and hopefully we'll, we'll, all, we'll all be fine for the next 10 years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. It's farmer, Tom Clark. Next time, I'm heading back to Wales again, and I'll be speaking with first-generation farmer Alex Heffron, who farms in Pembrokeshire. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and you can also follow the show on Instagram or Twitter at mtf underscore podcast. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time.